The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So I do invite you to open your Bible to John. Actually, John 19 is where we'll start. We'll spend the majority of our time in chapter 20, but starting at the end of John 19. So about a month ago, on July the 20th, Uh, My wife, Holly, and I checked into Brookwood Hospital for the birth of our fifth and final, fifth and final uh, child. And uh, when when the doctor arrived in the the room to talk with us uh, about everything, he looked at me. One of the first things he said, he goes, so this is number five. How involved do you want to be? And I, with much bravado and boldness, said, Doc, I'm ready to catch this kid. Let's do this. And he said, now, a lot of guys are all big talk, and then when the moment comes, they chicken out. I didn't know he was actually being serious. But now that he was being serious and it was really on the table, I told him, I was like, I, I, I got this. Let's, let's do this for real. And so, around 8 p.m., I left my very safe, comfortable position from by my wife's side, and I made my way to the end of the bed, a place I would have never imagined myself, a place I never would have imagined I could handle. But seven minutes later, I laid my hands on Solomon's head, and Holly tells me that I was laughing uncontrollably. (laughs) She wasn't as she pushed and I pulled Solomon into the, the world. And when I, when I was holding my son on that day, I said to him the same thing that I've said to every one of my babies on the day they were born. I said, do you know who I am? I'm your papa. I'm your I'm your papa. There is no greater revelation I could give to my child of who I am and what my role is in, in their life. And yet, I mean, obviously, he's a newborn. He doesn't understand what any of that means. He's going he's gonna to spend the rest of his life coming to see exactly what it means that I am his papa. He's going to see it through, through my words, through my actions, through, through my words and actions, that, that, that word Papa is going to fill up with, with meaning. Through my actions, I, I hug him, I discipline him. The day will come when we will wrestle together, we, we pray together, we sing together. Through my actions, he's going to come to know what it means that I am his Papa. Not just through my actions, but also through my, my words. I make a lot of I am statements to my kids. I am your Papa, I am an authority figure in your life. I am your confidant. I, I am here for you. It's through my words and my actions, Solomon will come to understand who I am. His Papa. The Apostle John, in his Gospel, he's been doing this exact same thing with us since the very first verse. Like, Like my son, in the first moments of his life, like he heard the declaration, the revelation, I am your papa, John, 
from the very first verse has spoken to us the ultimate revelation of who Jesus Christ is in every one of our lives. John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus is God. Like from the first verse, John has, has lifted up Jesus, and he's declared to all of us as we read, behold his glory. Behold who he is. Behold your God. But, but, but the awesome thing that we've seen about this gospel is John hasn't just declared that truth to us. No, he's treated us just like I treat my children, where it's throughout their lives. My words and my actions are filling up the revelation of who I am with meaning. John's done the same thing through his gospel. He's taken us by the hand, just as if we are children, and led us through a tour of Jesus' words and actions to fill up with meaning this revelation of who Jesus is, God in the flesh. He's shown us the glory of Jesus as God through Jesus' actions. We've seen Jesus turn water into wine, heal a nobleman's son, and a paralytic. We've seen him miraculous feed, miraculously feed 5,000. We've seen him calm the, the sea. We've seen him give a blind man sight. We, we watched him raise Lazarus from the dead. We're seeing what it means for him to be God in the flesh, that he's sovereign over nature, over disease, over death. John has shown us the glory of Jesus as God through his actions. He's also shown it to us through his words. Jesus has made a lot of I am statements. I, we've heard him say, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life. I am the true vine. Like through... Through his words and through his actions, John has held up Jesus and cried again and again, Behold his glory. Behold your God in the flesh. This, is, this has been John's goal. The, the title of our entire series is Behold His Glory, and that's because this is John's goal for you and me, to behold the glory of Jesus and see, I keep emphasizing that word for a reason, see who he is. So the question that hangs in the air for us as we arrive in John 20 is, do you see? Do you see the glory of Jesus? The Greek word for see, there's actually several different ones. But the primary Greek word for see that we're going to see throughout this passage also means to know. This is why we in English use words that way when you know something. I, I see what you mean. I know it. I get it. John is asking us, do you see Jesus for who he is? And last week, it was actually especially difficult probably for us to see that. Because last week, we saw John's presentation of the glory of Jesus come to a climax. He lifted up Jesus for what seemed like the final time, and he lifted him up upon the cross, and begged us, can you behold his glory there? Jesus, the Lamb of God, slain for the sin of the world, your sin, my sin, put on Christ as he willingly died the death that we deserve in our place. And last week, we worked very hard to behold the glory of the crucified Christ. But, if we're honest, we're honest, 
it's hard to see glory if all you look at is the cross. If we cut everything else out of view, it's hard to see glory if you just look at the cross. It's hard to believe that Jesus is in control, that he's sovereign if you just look at the cross. It sure becomes hard to believe the words he spoke in John chapter 10 and verse 18. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I want to say to Jesus, that's not what it looks like. Like You've been betrayed, arrested, beaten, crucified, and your final words that we heard last week were, it is finished? Like it's just over? That... That doesn't look like someone willingly laying down their life and pronouncing victory. It it looks like someone's life being forcefully taken from them in, in defeat. The cross seems to undercut all the words and actions of Jesus. It looks like all his words and his actions are being proven false. It's hard to see. Jesus' glory as God if all we look at is the cross. See this with me. John 19, verses 38 to 42. See how this just feels like defeat. Verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came, and he took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, that was in John 3. Nicodemus came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation... Since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So as the, the bloody, lifeless body of Jesus is taken down, not even by his disciples, by the way. Like, they're too scared to associate with Jesus now that he's dead. So he's got to be buried by people that were too scared to associate with him when he was alive. Like, do you feel how defeated this feels? He doesn't seem in control anywhere here. Doesn't even get his own tomb. Jesus did not do so hot on the planning for death phase of life. Got to borrow a tomb. It appears he didn't plan to die. It appears the plan failed. It's placed in a borrowed tomb nearby. And in light of all of this, as as Jesus' body is taken down and buried, the empty cross seemingly stands as a symbol of defeat and hopelessness. And it would be. the, the, The cross, the empty cross, would be a picture of hopelessness were it not for the empty tomb. Paul says this in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If we have an empty cross but a full tomb, we've got a problem. 
Christ didn't rise. This is all pointless, Paul says. Let's pack it up and go home. What are we doing here on Sunday morning? Why aren't we all sleeping in or playing golf? I hate golf. I don't even know why I said that. The empty cross would be hopelessness were it not for the empty tomb. An empty cross, it needs an empty tomb. Chapter 19, the crucifixion, it needs a chapter 20. Friday needs a Sunday. Death needs a resurrection. It is finished. That sentence has been spoken, but it needs an exclamation point to be understood rightly. We can only fully and finally see the glory of the empty cross from the doorway of the empty tomb. So, let's take a journey, you and I, this morning, through John chapter 20, so that together we may see, see Christ for who he is. So, John 20, verse 1, let's go. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, not the hour of seeing, came while it was still dark, and saw, she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Mary Magdalene, who had been a follower of Jesus after he'd cast seven demons out of her, she'd followed this man, loved this man, thought he was Lord God and Savior. And so she comes to Jesus' tomb, the borrowed tomb, it's in the midst of a garden. Uh, tomb structures in Israel at this time most likely are, are kind of like cave-like structures, and there would be several places within a singular cave for bodies to be laid. You would use a tomb to lay multiple bodies in there. But Jesus is in a new tomb. There's the only body in there, so no body mix-ups going on. One body in, it should still be there. And this tomb, the doorway of it had been covered with a stone, common practice, because grave robbers were extremely common in this time. So you cover that thing up. And when Mary gets there, she sees that that stone has been rolled away. But she doesn't see the reality of the situation. She makes an assumption. Look at verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That's John, our author. And she said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they've laid him. She assumes. She assumes that either grave robbers have gotten to him or perhaps more likely that the authorities have moved the body so that they don't know where it is. Regardless of which of those we choose, Jesus' body is gone, and the one thing she doesn't assume is that he has moved himself. That's not on her radar. And so Peter and John, they decide they need to see this for themselves. Look at verses 3 and 4. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb, both of them running together. They desperately want to get there as fast as they can. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John who is younger, probably in better shape, wins the foot race. But that's not the emphasis. The emphasis is not on who wins, who comes in first or second. John has them arriving at the tomb one at a time because he wants us to look. He wants us to see what they see one at a time. John arrives first and we look with him. Verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw. Do you see the emphasis here all throughout this passage? He saw the linen cloth lying there. But he did not go in. John sees linen cloths that Jesus' body was wrapped in, lying there. Then we get an even closer look with Peter, verses 6 and 7. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and he went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head. Not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up 
in a place by itself. So true to his character, Peter just rushes on in. I don't care. I don't care what's happening. I don't care if the grave robber just stood I'm going in. So he just rushes in, and he sees the same thing that John saw. He sees the linen cloth lying there, but he sees more. He sees the face cloth, specifically mentioned, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, folded up, set in a place by itself. John, our author, describes the seeing of these burial clothes to us twice. Why? You must either assume that John is a bad writer and repeats himself for no reason, or there's something here he wants us to see. What is so important about these linen cloths? We could say, we could say, okay, maybe this is important because it's proof that uh, this isn't a grave robber situation. Like what grave robber takes time to unwrap a body and make it more difficult to move? and then leaves behind valuable linen and spices. We could say that, and maybe that's true, but I think there's more. I think John is an excellent writer, and if we read his gospel as a whole, we realize there is one place where he has already talked to us about grave clothes. John chapter 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. In John chapter 11 and verse 44, we read this. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Same exact pieces of burial clothes mentioned in both places because I think John is setting these things in juxtaposition. He wants us to see a comparison and a contrast. He wants us to see there's a difference between the resurrection of Lazarus and what is taking place in the tomb of Jesus. Lazarus came out still wearing his grave clothes. It's as if death was still clinging to him. Because it was. Death still had a claim on Lazarus. Lazarus would die again. It's like he brought his grave clothes out because he was going to need them a second time. But when Christ sat up on Resurrection Sunday, death lost its hold, including the clothes. It's like he folded up the face cloth and stuffed it in a drawer because he didn't need it anymore. The tomb was borrowed, so was the wardrobe. Do you see? Do you see? John sees. Look at verses 8 to 10. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, John, he also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. John sees and he believes. He believes that Jesus is risen from the dead, even though he doesn't fully get that yet. He doesn't fully grasp it. It's not going to be until Christ himself appears and John's able to go back and relook at the scriptures he's learned throughout his life and reinterpret them in light of Christ that he comes to understand everything. But even though he doesn't get it all right now, he sees and believes. Do you see? Do I see the glory of Jesus and God in the flesh? The story continues. As the disciples leave to head back to their home, Mary Magdalene had had apparently, she had followed along behind them when they ran to the tomb. So they leave to go home, but she stays. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, weeping because she still doesn't see. 
And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, this is an important question, woman, why? Why are you weeping? I don't think Mary knows these are angels. She's bleary-eyed, eyes probably swollen from weeping. If she knew they were angels, this would be the only place in all of Scripture where someone encounters an angel knowingly and doesn't freak out. I think she just thinks they're men. And so she replies to them, honestly. She said to them, they've taken away my Lord. Do you not know where they've laid him? Having said this, she turned. Probably hears something behind her. She turned around and saw Jesus standing but she did not know that it was Jesus. The person that she's looking for is standing right in front of her, but she doesn't see that it's him. And why should she? Like, she's she's not looking for a standing, breathing Jesus. She's looking for him, but not seeing him. It's, It's almost like she's blind. And in verse 15, Jesus asks her an important question. Woman, why are you weeping? So two times John pointed out to us the grave clothes, and two times he wants us to hear this question. I think because he wants us to see the absurd nature of tears of grief at the door of the empty tomb. Mary, why are you weeping? This is not a place of grief. Do you see? And so Jesus helps her out, helps her to see. He asks her another question. Whom are you seeking? Verse 15 says, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Supposing him to be the gardener. Do you know what Mary's problem is right here? She's too good of an exegete. An exegete is someone who studies and interprets Scripture. And any good exegete knows context is king. Like you have to use context to interpret anything you encounter. She's been in one too many Bible studies with Jesus. And she knows her context. I'm in a garden that contains a graveyard. I can encounter corpses or gardeners. This guy's breathing. Ergo, he's a gardener. But Jesus is about to do what he does best. He's going to flip the context on its head. He is an expert context flipper. This this is a man who sees a hungry crowd and turns it into a feast. This is a man who sees a sea and treats it like a sidewalk. This, This is a man who goes to a funeral and by the time he leaves, it's like the greatest party everyone's ever been to. He is an expert context flipper. And Mary, Mary thinks that she is beside a grave for weeping. But with one word, she will see that she is actually by a God for worshiping. 
Mary asks him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me. Jesus is going to answer that question because technically, technically, he was responsible for moving the body. Technically, he did carry the body away. And so he's going to tell her, not where the body is now laying, but where it's now standing. And he does this all with one word. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mariam, Mary. Her name. She turned to him and said, Rabboni, which means teacher. One word, Mary, her name. And when Christ calls her name, she turns and sees. That's the only testimony any of us have. When Christ called our name, we turned and we saw. She turns and she sees and she calls out Rabboni, literally my own teacher. He calls her name and she sees. Jesus told us this is how this works. In John chapter 10 and verse 3, did he not say, the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Jesus, the good shepherd, we're seeing it come to life. He calls the name of his sheep, Mary, and she knows his voice. She, she hears her name and she knows his voice and she sees. She sees that all of Jesus' actions, all of his words, they weren't undercut by the cross. No, all of his actions and all of his words were true. From the doorway of the empty tomb, she can now see that the cross wasn't defeat, that it really was victory, that Christ really did lay down his life as the good shepherd on behalf of the sheep, that no one took his life from me, she know, from him. He, she knows that now because this is exactly how Jesus said we would know it. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. How are you going to know that? I have authority to lay my life down and I have authority to take it up again. And she sees that he has taken it up again. The empty cross makes sense. It only makes sense in light of the empty tomb. It no longer looks like foolishness. It looks like the wisdom of God. It, it is finished, the sentence that Jesus spoke now has an exclamation point, And it can be heard as a cry of victory. Everything Jesus ever did, everything he ever said, it's proven true in the resurrection. The resurrection vindicates Christ. It vindicates him. But not only that, in the resurrection, not only do we see that everything Christ ever said about himself was true, we also see that everything he ever said about us is true. The resurrection is not just for Jesus' vindication. Romans 4 and verse 25 says that the resurrection is for our justification. Everything he ever said about us is true. He really was the sacrifice for our sins. He really did die in our place. Our sins really are gone. He really has defeated our death. He has left death itself in the grave, folded it up and stuffed it in a drawer. It doesn't have any power anymore. Mary sees this. She sees this. In the resurrection, we behold the glory of Jesus. We see that he is God. Do you see? Do you see? Each of us, like, like Mary, we are blind to the reality of the resurrection. 
Like Mary, we, we are lost in a world that was created to be a place of life, like a garden. That's how it started. It's meant to be a place of life, like a garden, but, but it is a place of death, like a graveyard. And Christ enters into each of our lives if he so chooses, and he flips our context on its head simply by calling our name. Like he called out Lazarus from the tomb, like he called Mary's name in the garden, he calls us from death, he calls us from blindness to see life in him. Has he called your name? Do you see? For if you do, your context flips Everything changes. That's what we see with Mary. Everything changed for Mary. She goes from weeping by a grave to worshiping Christ. She latches on to him, tries to cling to him. She, she, she doesn't want to let go. And, and, and doesn't that seem in this situation like the appropriate response? Like if Christ has called your name and you've responded to him, wasn't that your response? I see him for who he is, the Lamb of God slain for my sins so that I get him forever. And I want him. I love him. I want to cling to him. I mean, in the resurrection, truly, in the resurrection, we see Christ as the God to whom we cling. That is a central truth. I see him. I want him. And I cling to him like Mary. That seems like an appropriate response, which is why the reply of Jesus is so interesting. Look at verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Jesus says, Don't cling. Literally, stop clinging. It's like she just kept grabbing, like he was going to disappear or get away. Jesus says, Stop clinging. Now is not the time. And now is not the place for clinging. That's what he says. I have not yet, don't cling for, because, here's the reason, I have not yet ascended to the Father. The implication of that is I will. I will ascend to the Father. And one day, Mary, you will be with me in that place and at that time. And there will be an eternity of clinging to be done. Revelation 22 and verse 3 promises that in the new heaven and new earth there will be the throne of God of the land, and the Lamb will sit on the throne and God's servants will worship Him. We will cling to Him forever. But Jesus looks at Mary and says, that's not yet. That this is not a time for clinging. It's a time for commissioning. Look at it with me. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but Go, go, go to my brothers and say to them, I've ascended to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Mary, don't cling to me because I have a commission. You're gonna, you're gonna go. You're gonna bear witness that what I have done through my death and my resurrection, it's, it's flipped the context. It's changed people's very relationship with God. Go tell my disciples that it is finished. I have taken away their sin that separated them from God the Father. So you can go and you can tell them that my Father is their Father. My God is their God. Flipped the context. Mary, don't cling. I have 
a commission, and she accepts it, receives it, and she goes. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen, seen, I've seen the Lord. And she announced to them that he had said these things to her. In the resurrection, we see Christ is the God to whom we cling, yes, but there's more. In the resurrection, we see that Christ is the God to whom we cling and by whom we are commissioned. In the resurrection, we see, I think that we often miss this second half. In the resurrection, we see that Christ is the God to whom we cling and by whom we are commissioned. That truth, I think it's a problem for many of us, especially for those of us who grew up in the church, or even worse, you're like me, you grew up as a pastor's kid. I think that for those of us who have been Christians for an extended period of time, that that this truth can be problematic because I think we can be great clingers. Jesus Christ, God's only Son, crucified, resurrected, yes, I believe that truth. It's a gospel truth. I cling to that truth. I read my Bible regularly to meditate on that truth. I love hearing about that truth in sermons. I love praying that truth. I love singing it. I love me some clinging to Jesus. Yet Jesus says now is not a time for merely clinging. I'm not saying we don't do that. Of course we do that. But he very explicitly says now's not a time for merely clinging. He's got a commission. Shades, are we only clingers? To the neglect of our commission. Like, do we come on Sundays to cling and walk out forgetting our identity as a commissioned people? One of the greatest indictments of this in my own life, personal confession, for the three and a half years that I went to Beeson Divinity School, the entire time I was in seminary, I never knew the name of my neighbors. I do not say that pridefully. I say that to my shame. Like I was dedicating my life to to, to this truth, to this gospel, studying it, memorizing it, giving every last waking moment of myself to it as much as I, I could. Clinging. Neglecting. The commission. I wonder, I wonder if that would be true for any of, of us. We come and we cling. But do we even know like the names of our, our neighbors? And do they know the name of our Savior? Do we have a conviction that we have been given a commission? We have got shades. Don't disconnect this. Let's connect it back together. I want you to see this because this isn't a guilt trip. Not at all. I want you to see how it's not in the text. We've got to see that our commission is tied to the resurrection. If we believe the resurrection, if we see Christ, the God to whom we cling, then it will show, if we've actually seen him, it will show in our obedience to the commission. 
Because this is what we see. It's what we see when we see the resurrected Christ. We see him as the God to whom we cling and by whom we've been commissioned. Jesus did not have to guilt Mary to go tell. Hey, Mary, quit the clinging stuff. You got to go tell people that I'm alive. You can't just have me all to yourself. You should feel really bad about this. Go. No. Because she actually saw the resurrected Christ. She wasn't guilted into this. She was joyed into it. We're joyed into this. What I want from you, what I want for you, and for me, Shades, is not for us to to hear a sermon like this and feel guilty. I'm not sharing the gospel with my neighbors. I'm such a horrible Christian. Woe is I loathe myself. This is me flogging myself. A whip. It's not not what I want at all. What I want is for us to see Christ, the resurrected Christ, really encounter Him as the Christ to whom we cling. He's living and breathing now. That is a reality, Shades Valley. Your Christ lives. He lives. He's not dead. Do you see Him? I want us to see Him and be joyed into this commission that He has graciously called us to. He's called us out of condemnation and into a commission. Out of a self-centered, in my own world, condemnation where I'm turned in on myself that will end in nothing but despair and damnation. And He's called me out of that into a life where I'm commissioned by Him, for Him, to share Him. And I will get nothing from it but eternal joy. That's a deal. I want us, I want us to, to see Him. In the resurrection, we see Christ is the God to whom we cling and by whom we are commissioned. That truth is repeated throughout the rest of the chapter. We're going to see it in detail in our next sermon. We're going to see the details of our commission, what it looks like, how we live it out. That'll be in the next sermon. But right here, real quick, I just want us to get the big picture. Throughout the rest of the chapter, we continue to see over and over again the truth that in the resurrection, we see Christ Christ as the God to whom we cling and by whom we are commissioned. We see it in the disciples in verses 19 to 23. Mary does come to them, and she comes testifying, I have seen the Lord. Yet the disciples, they cower in fear behind locked doors. Until the resurrected Christ shows up in their midst. And in verse 21, he shows up and he says, Shalom, peace with you. Jesus is flipping their context from fear to faith. He's flipping it. And he doesn't just tell them, That he brings peace. He doesn't just let them sit and cling to the peace right on the hills. Look at it. Right on the hills of peace be with you. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. He commissions them because in the resurrection we see Christ as the God to whom we cling and by whom we are commissioned. We see this truth again through a specific disciple, Thomas, in verses 24 through 29. Thomas was absent doesn't have perfect attendance in the book of John. Thomas was absent on the day that Jesus appeared to all the disciples. And so when they tell him, Thomas, yo, we've seen Jesus back from the dead. He's like, I don't believe you. I don't believe, not until I get to like touch some nail marks, not until I get to like insert my hand into this spear wound. I'm not going to believe you. So 
A week later, Jesus shows up again, and Thomas is there this time. And in verse 27, Jesus says to Thomas, put your finger here. See, see my hands. Put your hand here. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas, let me flip your context. I've turned Mary's mourning into joy, the other disciples' fear into faith. Let's turn your disbelieving into believing. And Thomas answers him in verse 28, my Lord and my God. Thomas cries out in clinging worship fashion, my Lord, my God. But Jesus won't let him stay there. Look at verse 29. Look where Jesus directs Thomas's attention. Jesus said to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas, you've seen and believed, but there are a lot more out there who aren't going to see like you have. But they're still going to come to believe. How? How? They're going to come to believe because as the Father has sent me, Thomas, so I am sending you. They won't see me with their physical eyes, but they'll see me through your witness, Thomas. Jesus turns the attention of Thomas and all of the other disciples towards their commission, towards those who will come to faith by seeing through their witness. This is how all of us came to faith. We sit here because through the faithful witness of others, we have come to to see Christ. And likewise, brothers and sisters, we have been commissioned. Those who have seen the Lord have been commissioned by the Lord to take the gospel to the world until all see. Do, Do you see? Do you see that in the resurrection, Christ is the God to whom we cling and by whom we are commissioned? In the resurrection, Mary saw Christ. The disciples saw Christ. Thomas saw Christ as Lord and God. Do you see Christ? Like even now, today, as we've explored John chapter 20, like through this word has Jesus called your name right now so that you, you turn and see that he is God. Do you see? This is why John has written this gospel in hopes that we might see. John writes because he, in the resurrection, he saw and believed, and he was commissioned. So he wrote, bearing witness that we might see and believe. He says that right at the end of the chapter, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says, I've written all these signs, all these miracles, including the resurrection. I've recorded it so that you may see and believe. I've written holding up Jesus from the beginning to the end of this gospel, saying, behold his glory. Behold your God. Do you, do you see? In the resurrection, we see Christ as the God to whom we cling and by whom we are commissioned. Shades Valley, do you see? I pray that we see and believe.